saw an article posted by an acquaintance of mine uh, recently, and the article had to do with uh, one of the big uh, drug manufacturers that was responsible for manufacturing one of the drugs that people tend to get addicted to, also apparently took out a patent on a drug that's supposed to help people get less addicted to that same thing. And this particular person was sharing this article as an example of hypocrisy. And we hear things like that all the time, right? Examples that, that to us seem to be examples of hypocrisy, right? Uh, a politician that uh, speaks out against corruption and then you find out that he's been cheating on his taxes or accepting bribes. Or um, some particular person that's on a crusade against uh, some other particular evil in society only to find out that person is participating in that same evil or something very similar. But we tend not to personalize those sorts of ideas, right? Um, it's easy for us to look down on someone, for example, who is... Uh, let's say uh, someone comes along and that person seems to be, uh, maybe addicted isn't the right word, but they, they regularly participate in smoking marijuana and we say, well, I wouldn't do that. I don't think that's right. But at the same time, perhaps we practice some form of gluttony in some other area of our lives. Or we say, well, I can't believe that this person over here would uh, be uh, promoting a lifestyle that says two men or two women should live together as though they were married. But then this person over here will excuse that person because that particular sin doesn't bother me as much. Or maybe even in our own lives, we say... I'm going to get upset over something that my children have done that is sinful, but I'm blind in some way to the ways that I'm sinning. I'm going to get really angry at maybe something that someone in the church said to me, but I'm going to participate in gossip. I'm going to, and, and the list could go on, right? We tend to sometimes think of hypocrisy as things that happen to people in high places that comes out and makes problems for them the next time they try to run for office or get a promotion or something like that. But hypocrisy really has more to do with our day-to-day -day lives than we care to admit. The passage that we're going to look at this morning is difficult on several levels. But I think we'll see this theme of hypocrisy coming up as we go through the passage. It starts out, innocently enough, Dinah, the daughter of Leah, whom she had born to Jacob, went out to visit the daughters of the land. It's possible that Jacob had other daughters, but she's the only one that we know of who is named. We saw her named back when uh, Jacob was living near Laban in Paddan Aram. Leah has all these sons, and then finally she has a daughter. Now they're back in the land of Canaan, and Jacob's daughter, Dinah, goes to visit the daughters of the land. Who are the daughters of the land? These are the Canaanites. They're, they're neighbors. Uh, there's probably some echoes in this passage of what we saw back in Genesis chapter 6. The 
the children, uh, the sons of God, saw the daughters of men were beautiful, took wives from them, and all of those sorts of things. Uh, there's a few echoes of that just in the way that this is phrased. But then all of a sudden in verse 2, we see this unexpected and uh, terrible thing taking place. When Shechem, the son of Hamor the Hivite, prince of the land, saw her, he took her and lay with her by force. So instead of following the proper pattern that we see back in Genesis chapter 2, which is a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife, and then they become one flesh. That's the pattern that's laid out at the end of Genesis chapter 2. A leaving, a committing, and then a joining. Here's this prince of the land who takes advantage of the vulnerability of Jacob's daughter Dinah and commits some act of sexual sin against her. Now, there are some disputes among commentators about what specifically is described here. Was Dinah completely unwilling in this activity? Was it something where she had perhaps been in the wrong place at the wrong time? Perhaps she even liked or thought that she loved Shechem, and then this took place? Was the, was the by force, was it completely unwilling on her part? It's difficult to say all of those things. The simple thing to, for us to take away is, at the very least, the sin is that they are acting in this way outside of the, the thing that God had established, the boundaries of marriage. At the very least. At the very worst, Shechem has taken advantage of his strength as a man or his position as a prince or both, to force himself upon Jacob's daughter. Uh, sometimes people have drawn out parallels between this passage and what takes place later in David's family with Tamar, or even what takes place uh, between those two events in the time of the judges with the concubine of the Levite. Uh, the parallel is that there is sin that takes place and uh, there are consequences from that sin. It seems that Hamor, or Shechem's goal is not primarily to hurt Dinah. Now, that seems a strange thing to say based on what the verse I just read said. Why do I say that his primary goal is not to hurt her? His primary goal, verse 3, he was deeply attracted to Dinah, the daughter of Jacob, and he loved the girl and spoke tenderly to her. He spoke to his father Hamor, verse 4, saying, Get me this young girl for a wife. Even verse 26, it appears that Dinah is staying in the household of Hamor, anticipating that she's going to become Shechem's wife. And so we take all of these things together, and the picture that's laid out for us is Dinah has some contact with Shechem. Shechem desires her to be his wife. He takes advantage of her and reverses the order that God has laid out for how this is supposed to work. Leaving, joining, and then being joined as one flesh. But he does desire to marry her. How are we supposed to think about a passage like this in light of the 
law of Moses, which would have likely have been given by the time that the children of Israel are reading these events. Let me read for you a passage from Deuteronomy chapter 22. This is probably what the original audience would have had in mind when they heard this account. Deuteronomy chapter 22, verse 23. If there is a girl who is a virgin engaged to a man, and another man finds her in the city and lies with her, you shall bring them both out to the gate of that city and stone them to death, the girl because she did not cry out in the city, and the man because he has violated his neighbor's wife. Thus you shall purge the evil from among you. But if in the field the man finds the girl who is engaged, and the man forces her and lies with her, then only the man who lies with her shall die. But you shall do nothing to the girl. There is no sin in the girl worthy of death, for just as a man rises against his neighbor and murders him, so is this case. When he found her in the field, the engaged girl cried out, but there was no one to save her. If a man finds a girl who is a virgin who is not engaged and seizes her and lies with her and they are discovered, the man who lay with her shall give to the girl's father fifty shekels of silver, and she shall become his wife because he has violated her. He cannot divorce her all his days. The law of Moses has not yet been given at the time that these events take place in the life of Jacob's family. The law of Moses most likely has been given when the Israelites are reading these accounts that Moses has compiled for them into the first five books of the Old Testament. And so they would be thinking about it in light of the passage that I just read to you. This becomes important when we see the response of Jacob's sons to what has taken place. What about for us today? Well, the picture of marriage that is laid out for us today is found in Ephesians chapter 5. So let me read that for you briefly just to set that context as well. Ephesians chapter 5 says this, Husbands or wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, he himself being the Savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her, so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. So husbands ought also to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church, because we are members of his body. For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother, that's the principle in Genesis, and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is great, but I am speaking with reference to Christ and the church. Nevertheless, each individual among you is to love his own wife even as himself, and the wife must see to it that she respects her husband. What is marriage supposed to look like in an ideal sense? If we take the full unfolding of the progress of God's revelation with regard to marriage, it's this. Marriage is designed to be a picture of the relationship that God has with his people, specifically Christ with the church. And so in that picture, there cannot be the sort of selfishness that says that the physical relationship comes before marriage that I can have the enjoyment of those things apart from the commitment and the sacrifice and the love that is exemplified by Christ toward the church. So we see that. There is also the sense of 
this being a, a holy thing, God's goal in the church is, is to present to himself someone who is holy and blameless and without spot and all those sorts of things. But the reality is none of us are that way, right? And so God has to work in salvation to cleanse us of our past sin and shame and guilt in order for us to be acceptable and holy and the perfect bride of Christ. So how do we fit all of these things together? The way that we fit all of these things together is that the proper response in this circumstance would have been, ideally, for it not to have ever taken place. But having taken place into the system laid out by the law of Moses, the expectation would have been that Shechem would have paid a bride price to Jacob, married Dinah, and stayed committed to her the rest of his life. The challenge to that is that Shechem was one of the Canaanites. And think about what we've seen so far about the reality of the Canaanites being part of the family, the tribe of Jacob. The reality was, several times already in the book of Genesis, people have been sent away, first the servant to get Rebekah as a wife for Isaac, and then Jacob to find a wife, not from among the Canaanites. We see the, the, the frustration and the difficulty and the sorrow that Esau taking wives of the Canaanites caused to his parents. And so there's also the problem of whether or not Dinah could legitimately marry one of the Canaanites based on what we know so far from the story. So what happens next? Jacob heard that he had defiled Dinah, his daughter, but his sons were with his livestock in the field, so Jacob kept silent until they came in. Then Hamor, the father of Shechem, went out to Jacob to speak with him. So Jacob's sons are out in the field. Now all the men of the household are gathered, and the men of Jacob's household and the men of Hamor's household gather to have a kind of negotiation for the marriage of Shechem to Dinah. This should have taken place before what we see in verse 2, and verse 2 never should have taken place, but that's where we're at in this story. The sons of Jacob came in from the field when they heard it, and the men were grieved, and they were very angry. We already read that verse. And there's this idea of a disgraceful thing because it not ought, ought not to be done. But Hamor spoke with them, saying, The soul of my son Shechem longs for your daughter. Please give her to him in marriage. Intermarry with us, give us your daughters to us, and take your da our daughters for yourselves. Thus you shall live with us, and the land shall be open before you. Live and trade in it, and acquire property in it. From a merely human perspective, this sounds like an attractive thing that Hamor is offering to Jacob and his family. You want peace in the land? The way to secure peace is for our two families to merge. Then we will both be stronger, we will be accepted, you won't have to worry about us attacking you, or you attack, we won't have to worry about you attacking us, because we're all one family. Does this line up with what God had laid out for Jacob up to this point? The reality is no. God had already said to Jacob, I will look after you, I will protect you. God had already said to Abraham, there's a clock counting down on how long the people of the land have before my judgment is going to come to them. Sometimes people look at these, these rules about intermarriage in the Old Testament or these concerns about intermarriage in the Old Testament as being primarily like a racial purity kind of a thing, like a, a racism kind of thing. 
don't marry that person because they're of a different ethnic background. First of all, they were of a similar ethnic background, so that argument doesn't have basis. And second of all, the concern was never about, is my family better than your family? The concern was about, here's a family who's supposed to be worshiping the one true God, and here's a bunch of families that are worshiping pagan gods and idols. So if these two families merge, what's going to happen? You're going to have a merge of worship of the one true God with worship of idols. This is why, even today, it is foolish for someone who is a believer in God to marry someone who is not. I've talked to many people, and you'll have someone who is a Baptist who marries a Roman Catholic, or someone who is a, um, a Lutheran who marries an Episcopalian, or whatever else. What inevitably happens in those circumstances it, is that there tends to be a conflict about whose church are we going to go to, and either it ends up being, let's send them to a completely different church, for whatever reason, I haven't figured that part out, or let's just forget church altogether. And so speaking to all of you here who are not yet married, you may meet someone who seems like the most amazing person in the world. If that person is not a Christian, it would be foolish for you to marry that person. Not because you're better than them. Not because they're not a nice person. But because it's going to set you up for a lifelong struggle over, are your children going to follow God? Are you going to follow God? All of those sorts of things. Sometimes people come to trust Christ after they're already married. Paul talks about in that in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. And he doesn't say, if somebody comes and trusts Christ after, the, after they're already married, he doesn't say immediately you should split up and go your separate ways. He says, as long as you can dwell in peace with each other, God can use you to encourage and to challenge and to work in that person's life, so stay in the marriage. But there's alongside that the reality that if you choose to marry someone who is not a Christian, and when I say Christian, think back to our church statement of faith. When I say Christian, I don't mean Baptist. You could marry someone who is a Presbyterian or an Evangelical Methodist or whatever else, as long as they believe in salvation through Jesus Christ alone, as long as they hold to the authority of God's word and are seeking to follow God's word in the course of their lives. I'm not saying you have to marry someone who believes everything that's in the second part of our church's statement of faith, our church distinctives, although that would be a good thing. I am saying they have to be a Christian if you're going to marry them, because otherwise you're going to run into the same problem that we see all throughout the Old Testament which is being pulled away from God. And you may think, my faith is strong enough, I'm the one that's going to do the pulling. But we live in a world and a society that's already pulling us without the person that we are closest to in our lives being someone else dragging us away from God. So, Hamor offers this as the solution. What's the response? Shechem is so... Uh, excited about the proposition that he chimes in. Shechem also said to her father and her brothers, if I find favor in your sight, I will give you whatever you say to me. Ask me ever so much bridal payment and gift, and I will give in according as you say to me, but give me the girl in marriage. He, he seems to truly, at the very least, care deeply for Dinah, possibly even believes that he loves her, wants to take her as his wife. So he says, 
Name it. I'll do it. I'll give it to you. Let's, let's see what we can do to make this happen. Jacob's sons, interestingly, not Jacob, but his sons, answer Shechem and Hamor with deceit. Why did Jacob's sons answer and not Jacob himself? It's possible that for similar reasons to what we saw in the negotiations for uh, Rebekah's marriage, where Laban takes the lead role, it could be a parallel situation of that, that the sons were in charge of the negotiations as much, if not more, than the father. It could be that the sons take the lead because Jacob's authority is weakening over them. The text doesn't say, but those are a couple of possibilities. What's their response? We cannot do this thing to give our sister to one who is uncircumcised, for that would be a disgrace to us. In their minds, they're thinking, it would be disgraceful, it, you have shamed our sister. But with their words, they're saying, for her to be given to one who doesn't follow the rites and rituals of our family in in, before God, that's the shameful thing. That's what they say to them. So, if you're circumcised, every male of you, we will give our daughters to you. We will take your daughters for ourselves, and we will live with you and become one people. But if you will not listen to us to be circumcised, we will take our daughter and go. Several of the commentaries pointed this out. Should they have sort of held out the promises of the covenant before pagan peoples as though those pagan peoples could participate when God had not authorized them to say that? No. You can't use the fact of their relationship with God as a bargaining tactic and say, well, if you just follow the same process, everything's good because God had not chosen the Canaanites to participate in those rites and rituals, and to this point, had not made a way for them to participate, even though that will come later in the Law of Moses. Verse 18, Their words seemed reasonable to Hamor and to Shechem, Hamor's son. The young man did not delay to do the thing, because he was delighted with Jacob's daughter. He was more respected than all the household of his father. He couldn't wait, which is a remarkable thing, considering what they were asking of him. This was a painful process, particularly as an adult, but he was willing to do it. They talked to the men of the city, verse 20, and said, verse 21, These men are friendly with us. Let them live in the land and trade in it, for the land is large enough for them. Let us take their daughters in marriage and give our daughters to them, only on this condition that every male becomes circumcised. And they see it as an advantage. Will not their livestock and their property and all their animals be ours? Only let us consent to them and they will live with us. All who went out of the gate of his city listened to Hamor and to his son Shechem, and every male was circumcised, all who went out of the gate of his city. Persuasive speech, acceptance of it, following through on the act. Now it's time for the wedding, right? No, now on the third day, when they're perhaps most in pain, most vulnerable to attack, Jacob's sons come and they kill Hamor and his household. They kill every male. They take Dinah. They plunder the city. They take all their livestock. They take all their wealth. They take all their children. They take all their wives. And they leave. Was what Shechem did wrong? Yes. In what, to whatever degree, he took advantage of Dinah, and he should not have done so, because God said that's not the way it's supposed to work. Did that justify what Jacob's sons do next? 
the lying and the murdering and the plundering. Their excuse is in verse 31. Should he treat our sister this way? Take advantage of her, take her virginity away from her, and then offer to pay us for it as though that makes up for it? That was their attitude and the thing that they expressed to Jacob. What's Jacob's attitude in all of this? Well, first he was silent, and then he was silent, and then he expresses fear in verse 30. You've brought trouble on me. They will have an alliance and attack me. Was this a reasonable fear? Potentially, from the perspective of Genesis 14, the alliances between the kings who fought with the other kings, and Lot got swept away in the midst of it, and Abraham had to go rescue him. Was it a reasonable fear from a human perspective? Yes. Was it a reasonable fear considering that God had just protected him from Esau, the one person who was most likely to want to kill him, and the fact that God protected Lot using Abraham, and the fact that God had made promises to Jacob, was that a reasonable fear at this point for Jacob to have? No. How could this story have turned out differently if Jacob had acted in some way? Some people see his silence as a good thing. Some people see it as a bad thing. The fact that his fear is expressed at the end of the chapter makes me think that his, his silence was a bad thing. Why was he silent? Potentially, and I think we have reason to assume this from the text, potentially because he was less concerned about what happened to the child of his least favorite wife than he was concerned about what would happen to his family if he did something about it. Chapter 35, God says, go to the place where I'm going to meet with you. All the times that I read through Genesis, I never really understood or never thought in as much detail about why this passage comes right before the next passage. Look at verse 2, chapter 35. Put away foreign gods among you, purify yourselves, and change your garments. Why was it necessary to put away foreign gods, purify themselves, and change their garments? They captured idols, potentially, from Shechem and his family. They have bloodstains on their hands and on their clothes. And now they're supposed to go and meet God. They certainly weren't ready to meet God. Jacob says, I'll go up and make an altar. So they gave to Jacob the foreign gods and the rings, and he hid them under the oak, which was near Shechem. This perhaps foreshadows what happens with Achan and the hiding of the spoil from the cities. Was it a good thing? Was it a bad thing? The text does not say. One would think that if they were truly done with all those idols and signs of pagan worship, that they would have destroyed them in some way, right? Moses ground up the idols. Moses cast them into the water in the incident with the Israelites in Exodus. One would think that they should have taken a more drastic step to rid themselves of these idols, but at the very least, they set them aside for this time, and they go to the place where they're going to meet God. They go to meet God. Verse 5 was fascinating in light of Jacob's fear in verse 30. As they journeyed, there was a great terror upon the cities around them, and they did not pursue the sons of Jacob. Some people say that the reason there was a terror on the cities is because they heard what happened to Shechem and his family. But there's a lot of Canaanites living in the land. 
Why is there probably really a terror upon the cities? Because God's watching over them, and God puts a fear of the, in the Canaanites toward Jacob's family in order to protect Jacob's family, just like he will later do for the Israelites as they come to conquer the land of Canaan. Jacob's fear did not come to pass, just like his fear of meeting Esau did not come to pass, because God had faithfully kept his promises to him. This middle section of chapter 35 sort of wraps up the whole arc of Jacob's life. And so I want to talk about that briefly, and then we'll come back to the main point that I was making from chapter 34 in the first part of chapter 35. Jacob said, God made promises to Jacob in Genesis 28. Jacob made promises to God in Genesis 28. God says, I'll watch after you, I'll protect you. Jacob said, if you bring me back here, I'll give you a tenth. Bring me back safely to my father's household. He comes to Luz, that is Bethel. He builds an altar, calls it El Bethel. Verse 8, Deborah Rebecca's nurse dies. She's buried below Bethel under the oak named the Oak of Weeping. Then verses 9 through 21, God appears to Jacob, blesses him. Your name is Jacob, no longer Jacob, but Israel shall be your name. God says, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply a nation, and a company of nations shall come forth from you. And kings shall come forth from you. The land which I gave to Abraham and Isaac, I will give it to you, and I will give it to your descendants after you. Then God went up from him in the place where he had spoken with him. So God's renewing the promises, renewing the covenant. Jacob then sets up a pillar, pours out a drink offering on it, poured out oil. So Jacob named the place where God had spoken with him Bethel. Then in verses 16 through 20, we have the birth of Benjamin and the death of Rachel, Jacob's favorite wife. And then we have Jacob tra uh, traveling, verse 21, beyond the Tower of Eder. And then, at the very end of the chapter, we see Jacob, verse 27, came to his father Isaac at Mamre of Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, where Abraham and Isaac had sojourned. The days of Isaac were 180 years. Isaac breathed his last and died and was gathered to his people, an old man of ripe age, and his sons Esau and Jacob buried him. And so this, this arc of leaving Isaac, returning to Isaac, meeting with God, meeting with God, and all the events in between comes to its end. I skipped over, though, verse 22. It came about while, while Israel was dwelling in that land that Reuben went and lay with Bilhah, his father's concubine, and Israel heard of it. The very thing that chapter 34 condemned the Canaanites about, Jacob's own son Reuben is doing. And why does he do it? Well, if we think about the reason that Absalom does it toward David, it is to consolidate his power and to shame his father. What's the consequence of it for Reuben? He loses his birthright. What's the next chapter about? Esau. What are we supposed to take away from these chapters? I'm not going to list for you all the names in chapter 36. This is simply an outline of Esau's family and the fact that Esau's family becomes kings long before Jacob's family becomes kings and reigns in the land, and yet they are not the chosen one to become kings. It lays out how they will later become some of the enemies of the Israelites, some of the descendants of Esau, 
and yet how God for this time has blessed them despite the fact they're not the heirs of the promise. God blesses them because we see in the beginning of chapter 36 all of the possessions of Esau and all the possessions of Jacob are so great that they have to separate ways, much like Abraham and Lot earlier in the book of Genesis. But this seems to be a peaceful separation. And so again, we see that God has reconciled the two brothers. But going back to chapter 34 into chapter 35, what do we see? We see the Canaanites that though sinful, other than that initial act by Shechem, are behaving more righteously than the Israelites. They're negotiating in good faith. They're following the process for arranging a marriage for their son to Jacob's daughter. They follow through on the terms of their agreement. And we see in contrast, Jacob's family, because of their wrath and their anger, going far above and beyond what any reasonable justice would require and committing deceit and murder, and plunder, and then Reuben himself behaving exactly like Shechem did later in chapter 35. This is a sobering passage. It's a difficult passage. It's something to, that we don't necessarily want to think about. But what lessons should we take away from it? Sometimes, our Anger against sin is directly related to how sinful we are ourselves. What I mean by that is it's possible for us to be aware of sin in a way that agrees with God about it and rejects it because it offends God. And it's possible to be aware of sin in our hearts and lives and then be proportionally angry, not at ourselves, but at other people's sin, because that sin offends us instead of seeing how our sin offends God. And the circumstance that we see in this chapter is the kind where they saw the sin that Shechem committed, and let's acknowledge it was wrong, but instead of seeking an appropriate resolution like the Law of Moses would later lay out, or like the New Testament lays out, which is, we can't fix all of the wrong things that have come into our lives, but we can serve God moving forward from the point where we're at, right? Should marriage theoretically last from when the point it starts to where the point when one or both people in the marriage die, a thing characterized by commitment and love and be a picture of Christ in the church? Yes. Is that always the reality in our, in our world? No. But can we please God whatever point in those things we find ourselves and say, okay, I was married and now I'm not, and I see what I did wrong, but I'm going to serve God from this point forward? We can say that, yes. Or I wasn't living the right way in my marriage, but now I am. I'm going to live for God from this point, yes. Or I thought that it would be a good idea for me to pursue an unbeliever, but I'm going to stop pursuing an unbeliever and I'm going to follow after God. We can make those decisions at whatever point in the process we find ourselves and, and follow God from that point. But what we cannot do is look at a sinful act by another person and use it as an excuse for us to commit more sin because our hearts are full of sin like we see characterized in Jacob's sons. 
Jacob's sons say, he has shamed our sister, we're going to wipe him out. These people are idolaters, so we can't intermarry with them. We'll say that we will, but we can't really because they're idolaters. But we're going to have idols over here that we have to bury under the oak tree. I can't believe that you would shame our sister by acting in this way, but I'm going to shame our father by acting in this way. Do we see the hypocrisy that's present in the hearts of Jacob's family. What's the reason for this? I mean, at, at the most basic root reason, it's that we're all sinners. But what were other things that contributed to it? Jacob is no longer Jacob, he's Israel. But did his sons and his daughter watch him being Jacob for a long stretch of his life? They did. And that had an effect on them. It didn't excuse them, but it had an effect on them. What other things affected them? Laban was their uncle. Rachel and Leah were their mothers. Those things all had an impact on them. Did not excuse their sin, but did affect it. The reality is that we're responsible before God for what we do, regardless of what anybody else around us has done. And so the thing that we should not do is look at this passage and say, look at how hypocritical they are. The thing that we should do when we look at this passage is to say, how am I looking at someone else's sin being angry at their sin, and ignoring my sin. That doesn't mean we never talk to other people about their sin. We have a responsibility to do that. It does mean we do so humbly, recognizing we can and have and maybe are being tempted. That's what Galatians talks about. How do I know if I'm being hypocritical? When I look at the sin of someone else, and the anger is selfish or the anger is completely disproportionate to the sin that was committed. Somebody lies about me and I blow up in a huge way. Why? Potentially, because I feel like they ought to get what's coming to them because they did wrong against me. And we often feel that way when we're secretly loving sin ourselves. But when we see what Christ has done in forgiving us of our sin, and the fact that we didn't deserve God's kindness and God's love, and the fact that we are still sinners ourselves who in need of change, our reaction to the sin of others, while it should never be to say it's okay, or it doesn't matter, or it doesn't all work out. Our anger toward the sin of others in a self-righteous sort of way goes down because we are more aware of our own sin. But when we are blind to our own sin, our anger toward other people's sins in a self-righteous way goes up, just like the Pharisees. And what did Jesus say to them? 
you tithe minuscule portions of spices while showing hatred to the widow and letting her starve, not according to the law. We start picking and choosing the things that we think God wants us to do. So as you go throughout this week, when you find yourself being upset at something someone does wrong to you, use that as an opportunity to examine yourself and say, am I loving sin in some way that this disproportionate anger about someone else's sin is revealing that there's a problem in my heart as well? I'm not saying it's always the case, but I am saying it's often the case that when we are really angry about someone else's sin, because our own sin is not being dealt with. A sobering chapter, a difficult chapter, a chapter that ought to drive us to say, if I've been forgiven by Jesus, I need to forgive other people. If I've been forgiven by Jesus, I can't live in the sin that Jesus forgave me of. And the fact that we, like Paul, when he says, I have not yet arrived, I press toward the mark, we're not there yet. No matter how far we are in our Christian lives, there are still things that we need to deal with in our hearts to repent of, to keep turning to Christ, seeking the help of the Spirit to change because so many times it is possible for us to be blind to sin in our own hearts, but to be keenly aware of it in the lives of other people. And a passage like this shows how far we may be from the mark when we are living that way. Let's pray. Lord, sometimes people say they don't want anything to do with the church because it's full of hypocrites. And in one sense, that's a fair accusation because all of us at some point or another do show hypocrisy. We know what we ought to do, but we don't do it. We point out other people's flaws while downplaying our own. We forget the great mercy that you have shown to us and fail to show it to others. But there's another sense in which that accusation is perhaps the best reason that we should be gathered with people at church. Because the difference is not that we're not hypocrites, but hopefully that we are aware of it by your grace. That we are seeking to change that by your power. And that you are doing a work in our lives so that that becomes less and less true. As time goes on, as we become more and more like Christ as you accomplish the vision that's laid out in Ephesians 5, that we would be a pure and radiant bride for Christ, presented to him in glory when he comes to return to this earth. And so, Lord, we pray that you would be at work in our lives so that we would be a part of that. In Christ's name, amen.